you this morning. Wonderful to be able to worship the Lord our God together corporately. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 8 as we continue to work through this letter to the Hebrews. We're returning again this Lord's Day to Hebrews chapter 8, looking specifically at verses 6 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8. I hope as you have been following along in this series that there has been um, anticipation and excitement to, to really dig into the new and better covenant that we read about in Hebrews chapter 8. As you're finding that passage, I just want to remind you that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have been saved by grace through faith in him, you are part of the new covenant. We are hopefully going to, um, with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning, gaze upon the glory of God's redemptive plan in redeeming a people for himself through the person and work of his son. And this is one of the clearest depictions in scripture of what God promised long ago coming to fulfillment in Christ. And so please follow, follow along as I read from God's word, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, some of us in this room had the privilege just a few days ago on Friday to witness a marriage ceremony. One man and one woman, the Dysons family, Dylan and Bailey, one man and one woman entering into covenant with one another in marriage. 
something ordained by God, two parties involved coming together as one flesh before God and those who were in attendance. Uh, that was a great reminder for those who are married, who were in attendance of that ceremony to reflect, this is me speaking personally, on my own marriage, on God's grace and mercy upon my marriage. When we hear this portion of scripture read, my prayer is that for those who have experienced salvation in Christ, your hearts would be enlarged. The fan uh, of, of flame of love and encouragement would, would, would be blown upon you, that you would reflect and remember and rejoice in the work that God has done in your life. It is good for us to recount God's mercy and his grace, to reflect upon the great salvation that we have experienced in Christ. My prayer also is for those outside of Christ. As you hear about this great love that the creator of the heavens and the earth has, has bestowed upon a people who are so undeserving, that your eyes this day would be open to the glory of the gospel, to the, the, the worth of Christ, the, the costly grace that is made, made available to, to rebels like us. As we think about the new covenant, and I've been praying towards preaching this particular sermon and working through this passage, I think the best place to start really is death found in Adam and life in Christ. And so while we don't ever see this terminology, this phraseology in Scripture, covenant of works, I want you to understand that all the way back in the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve, God placed them in the garden, and something happened between God and Adam. So hold that thought for a second. God entered into a covenant with Adam. Also, similar, similarly, there's terminology, the covenant of grace, which is never specifically used in the Bible, but I want to encourage you, just like the, the term Trinity is not found in the pages of Scripture, the idea is very much a reality. It is a biblical truth. So, covenant of works, covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is never used, but we also know that God revealed after the fall, Genesis 3.15, a promise that one day... One day, a Savior would come and rescue a people who didn't deserve it. That Messiah would serve as a representative. So just as Adam was the head or representative of mankind, so this Messiah, the one to come, would also be a representative. Now, you may at this point be going, um, Joel, you're just making this all up. 
Uh, let's ground this in Scripture. And so if you've got your Bible still open, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Just a couple of verses there, but I want you to see that this is not just some kind of man-made fabrication, but there really was something happening between God and Adam and something happening between God, obviously, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there's a situation that happened with this head, this representative. Then I want to draw your attention to verses 17 and 18. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so helpful. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the covenant of works was enacted in the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God speaking to Adam as our federal head, our representative. We all know what happened. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. What was the result? Death. Death entered into reality. This was considered the old humanity. Everyone who has ever been born of the flesh belongs to the old humanity. Adam's sin, that original sin, is our sin. The covenant of grace was first promised, again, in Genesis 3.15, and it pointed forward. It pointed forward to the day that one act of obedience led to justification of many. So where the covenant of works was broken by Adam and the result was death, the covenant of grace made between the Father and the Son, Christ perfectly fulfilling, brought life. That framework is crucially important in understanding what we're getting to in the new covenant. Another way to think about the covenant of grace, I hope this is helpful, is in four sequences that are laid out like this. First, this covenant of grace was decreed in past eternity. Theologians would refer to that as the, the covenant of redemption made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundations of the earth. Secondly, it was revealed to man after the fall of Adam and Eve. So if you're not familiar, in Genesis 3.15, in very germinal form, 
we are given this promise that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the son of the woman, the seed of the woman. Now, if you have not read all the way through redemptive history, that would seem a little foggy, but it was pointing forward to the one who would come and accomplish or undo what was broken by the fall. Death entering into the world, this promised one to come, made in Genesis 3.15, we see, number three, was executed and confirmed by Christ in his death and resurrection. And then lastly, the covenant of grace becomes effective for its members when they are joined to Christ through faith. So kind of four sequences, eternity past, after the fall, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then all those who would repent and believe upon him being united with the Son through faith, experience the covenant of grace. This really is foundational to a Reformed Baptist understanding or conviction that the old covenant that we read about in Scripture and the new covenant that we've read today in Hebrews chapter 8, they differ in substance. They are not the same covenant with just a different administration, kind of old covenant and new covenant. There is only one covenant of grace that we've talked about, which was revealed from the fall in a progressive way until its full revelation and conclusion in the new covenant. Reformed Baptists also believe that no covenant preceding the new covenant was actually the covenant of grace. Before the arrival, the execution of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, this is very important, was always in the stage of promise. So if you're thinking about covenants that you've read about, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, all of these covenants that God has entered into with the people of Israel or his people, we need to understand that the covenant of grace in, in all of that was just in the, the form of a promise that one day would find its fulfillment in the new covenant. Some may not have thought you had to bring your, your thinking cap this morning. I know this is deep and weighty, but it's, it's really important, I pray and hope, to help us understand the beauty, the breadth, the, the grandeur of the new covenant. Why is this important to understand? Because in the book of Hebrews, we hear the word better used a lot. Better actually means something specific. It's not just kind of saying like, I like this ice cream better than that ice cream. There's, there's something important behind the word being used here, better. Now, the term better can be understood in various ways. That ice cream example that I just gave, comparing something that is in the same class and of the same nature. So you walk out into our particular parking lot and you'll see lots of trucks. 
And you could go and say, her truck is much nicer than his truck. And you're comparing something in the same class or of the same nature. That's one way to use the word or the term better. But when we get into the book of Hebrews and what we see, if your Bible's still open in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, the word better is used twice. And I want to submit to you that it's a different usage of this term better. So many of you may not know this about me, but there was a time in my life where I had that entrepreneurial spirit and my wife and I had the opportunity, the privilege to sell women's fashion accessories. So for three years, I attempted to help ladies of all ages find jewelry that would look good on them or match an outfit. And I probably failed. My mother-in-law could probably testify miserably in, in that, but I tried. Where I'm going with this is this store that we owned uh, was filled with costume jewelry, okay? So a lot of bling, but you could look at Jane's hand and the ring on her wedding finger was, was real, a real diamond, maybe not very big, but it was real and precious and in a very different class or category from the costume jewelry, jewelry that we sold in the store. So you would say, I hope, Jane's ring is better than those cubic zirconiums that you have in this store. It is categorically better. It's, it's of a different class, a different nature. When we read better in the letter to the Hebrews, for example, in chapter 1, the superiority of Christ to angels, Jesus is better than angels. We're not saying Jesus is just a better kind of angel. He is of a different class. His superiority as the eternal Son of God is on a different playing field. We're not even talking about the same category. And that was to help the original recipients of this letter understand that what we have in the new, don't be tempted to go back to the old. It is so much, Jesus is so much better. It is a different class or nature of better that we're talking about here. That's the comparison between the new covenant and the old covenant. It's that kind of better. So in verse 6, you've probably looked down, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So I want, again, to submit to you that the ministry of Christ, the covenant in his blood, and the promises upon which the covenant stands are substantially different better than that which came before. I want to draw your attention to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What is the nature of this fault that is found in the first covenant that was established by God himself? We're referring to the Old Covenant. Specifically, you can think about God on Mount Sinai giving his law 
to Moses. That, that, that's a helpful way to, to kind of frame when we think old covenant God entering into covenant with his people. I will be their God, they will be my people. If you obey, there is blessing. If you disobey, there are going to be curses. Verse 7 is telling us if, if the first covenant did not have fault, there wouldn't be a need for a new covenant. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what's going on here? What does it mean? It's, it's faultiness wasn't like a machine in need of some kind of repair. It's faultiness was rooted in its incompleteness. We, we heard even two Sundays ago the copies and shadows of the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, were copies and shadows of something of substance to come. So it was incomplete in that sense. The old covenant was faulty because it was not final or finalized. The old covenant was established by God and it served a particular purpose. While God had initiated the Old Covenant, I took them by the hand and did so by the power that he displayed in the story of Exodus. We read in this quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 that they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them. And so the, the corruption and the pollution of man's nature inflicted in, Abra I'm sorry, in Adam's sin, in the covenant of works, when we look at the old covenant, it really was untouched by this covenant with Israel. That problem of the fall, meaning the old covenant never, never was given in order to give life. So we know the covenant of works between God and Adam, and he broke it, caused death to enter in, the Old Covenant was never given to the people to, to give life. And so it was, it was always pointing forward, pointing towards something else. So it did not, in and of itself, affect the change in one's mind and one's heart so that they would continue to walk faithfully in it. A violated covenant again, brings curses that were promised by God in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And we also, as we observe the Old Covenant, while there were those who knew the Lord in the Old Covenant and followed his statute, the New Testament would refer to that as a remnant within Israel, there were also many, many who didn't. So while they were part of the bloodline, part of the people of the covenant, their minds and hearts were not renewed. Their, their hearts did not beat for God. They had the law external, but there was no transformation internal. That was the majority of those who were a part of the old covenant. If it was doomed to fail, why then did God set it up? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. Why, why the old covenant? What's the point? If, 
man and woman are, are, are depraved. We watch the story unfold of again and again, their hearts are running towards anything other than God. Why the old covenant? Again, go with me for a moment to the covenant of works with Adam. When that covenant was violated, there was a complete end to any promises thereafter. To understand the covenant of works, once it was broken, that was it. Punishment, death entered into the world. It promised nothing, and after it was broken, it remained in force only the threatening part. It menaced death to all the sinful seed of Adam, but admitted no other into it without sin, either to perform the righteousness of it or to answer the penalty. And so, when you think of the old covenant, one great end of God in bringing Israel under the Sinai covenant was to make a way for Christ his being born or made under the law in order to fulfill God's law for us, for sinners who could not. So the covenant of works was, in a sense, reaffirmed in the old covenant. The covenant of works did not provide a substitution to satisfy God's wrath no one could obey in Adam's place nor suffer in his punishment. But in the old covenant, God allowed for a righteous person to substitute himself for sinners. Hence, all the types and shadows of the whole ceremonial law, all the sacrifices pointing forward. So not only was the old covenant not against the promises of God, but it was actually given specifically for the accomplishment of the promises. So through and in the obedience to the old covenant, there is actually a way made for those who are far off from God to be brought near. Not because of anything that we do, but because of this great high priest that we've been reading about through Hebrews the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain in our place. It is under this law of the old covenant that Christ was born. And it is the same law that Christ fulfilled by his obedience. And it is the curse of the law which he endured by his death. Christ, therefore, accomplished the old covenant perfectly thereby establishing the new covenant by his blood. So the substance of the new covenant can really be summarized in three blessings. The law written on the heart, the personal and saving knowledge of God, and the forgiveness of sins permanently always and forever. All of this is declared the new covenant for those who receive Christ by faith. God's law written on your hearts, a true knowing 
of God and the forgiveness of your sins. Like I mentioned earlier, when you were looking at our passage this morning, this is a large portion. I believe it's the largest quotation of an Old Testament passage. Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant is first articulated in such a way in the old, the author to the letter of the Hebrews is is quoting and seizing that to help the people understand the great, the greatness, the new and better covenant that is found in Christ and Christ alone. So please now look at verses 8 and 9 with me as we look at this quotation starting off. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. I want to just make note briefly as we're moving through this. A unique element of the new covenant is that it is unbreakable. That is hugely important. Before, Israel did not continue in the Old Covenant. Meaning, the promises of the Old Covenant were preceded by an if. If you do this, then I will do this. If you obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there will be curses. While the promises of the New Covenant were marked by Divine monergism. Really, all that means is it's all of God. God is doing all of the work in the new covenant. How do we, how do we know that? When you look at this quotation, it is, uh, it is all about I will. I will do this. You will be my people based off of what I have done for you. The new covenant is secured by God's oath-bound promise. We we looked at that earlier in Hebrews, an oath-bound promise. This is God saying, I will. And we know that God never lies. And he is faithful and true. And so when he has made this promise that one day I will make this new covenant, where I will... I will. That is grace upon grace. In adult Sunday school, we heard Romans 9, 16 quoted. We need to understand that in the new covenant, the Lord works both to will and to do his good pleasure. Therefore, it is not in him that wills, nor him that runs, but in God who shows mercy. The reason why the new covenant is unbreakable is because the covenant of works that is reaffirmed in the old covenant was actually accomplished once and for all by the work of Christ. And so this this eternal covenant that God had made with his son, when the son executed that covenant perfectly, 
then he extends that to sinners who come to him, believe upon him. It is secure. It is unbreakable. Where before it relied on man's obedience, responding to God's law, will you follow me? Yes or no. The new covenant is all about what God has accomplished through his son on our behalf. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Whereas at, at Sinai, God inscribed his commandments on stone tablets, and the new covenant, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and on their hearts. I want you to see that all those in the new covenant experience what only the remnant experienced under the old. True internal conversion resulting in a love for God, a love for God, for his law, and a, an actual true relationship with him. This is why the new covenant is better. I want to just spend a moment thinking about this because I think a lot of times, depending on your background, understanding the new covenant, being part of the household of faith, Christian, part of the way, I think when we, when we uh, approach God's law, it starts to get a little, a little confusing for some. Whether you've been taught how to view God's law differently than others. But I just want us to see what is very plain and obvious. If you have ever thought that coming to Christ means that we do away with God's law, you're not actually reading the, the substance of the new covenant. Rather than it just being external, inscribed on stone tablets, what's, what's being promised here is that God is going to actually write his law, which is perfect and good, on our minds and on our hearts. So if your concept of grace is just kind of let loose and let live because his grace covers whatever mess I do and I can just go on sinning, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 would say, you don't actually understand grace at all. It is not pushing away God's law, saying that somehow this is bad and living according to the flesh is good, but we've got license because grace abounds. No, 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 no. God's law reflects who he is. And we who have been adopted into his family through the work of the Son, we want to please our Father. We want to live lives that honor and glorify him, and he has given us the foundation, the blueprint, in which to live and to thrive, to flourish. His law is good and right, not as a means for life, meaning you obey and somehow you're made right with God, not at all. That's why Christ had to come and perfectly obey the Father, because we miserably fall short of the glory of God. But once you've experienced your sins forgiven and the gift of eternal life and adoption into his household, the law the law of the Lord it should actually be like honey on our lips. It is good. 
It is right. Now, some laws in the Old Testament always had a redemptive purpose, looking forward to the work of the Savior. For example, we've talked a lot about this, the sacrificial and priestly codes, the ceremonial law was always pointing forward and Christ fully fulfilled and, 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 and uh, has, has done away with that aspect of God's law because we find the substance fulfillment in Christ holy. But we must not assert that all laws, for example, you shall not murder or you shall not steal, somehow that, that those um, who... who re- who, that reflect God's character should somehow be kind of pushed to the side or are no lo- longer relevant to those who are believers in Christ. And so we must recognize the notion that there is a ceremonial division within the law. These laws and their very nature or purpose really imposed a separation at one time between Jews and Gentiles. But in the new covenant, we see that God has made those two different people actually one people. And so you can kind of see in God's redemptive plan that the ceremonial laws being, being fulfilled in Christ are no longer relevant to the people of God because of what they were always as shadows and copies pointing to. But again, this does not then just throw out the baby with the bathwater. It's, it's not saying that God's law, his moral law, is somehow irrelevant or not applicable to the new covenant. Just to kind of go a little bit further here, Jesus perfectly obeying the laws that God has commanded does not do away with God's perfect rule. Rather, where there was once condemnation and disobedience, there is now justification in life in our federal head, in our representative. Christ himself in Matthew 5, 17 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So consequently, to live in submission to the new covenant is actually to rejoice in the law. For it is written upon our hearts, out of which really are, are flow the issues of life. Verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The new covenant brings salvific knowledge and relationship to, and I want to emphasize this, to all to all who are part of the new covenant. This is really important as you look at verse 11. As John Owen once noted, where there is some degree of saving knowledge, there will be an interest in understanding and grabbing hold and relishing in the new covenant. Where there is not some degree of saving knowledge, there is no interest in the new covenant. It cannot even be pretended. The knowledge that I'm referring to, I think we get a a good illustration of this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. As a body, we worked through 1 Samuel. In chapter 2, we are introduced to the wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. 
And in 1 Samuel 2.12, we read that these wicked, worthless sons did not know the Lord. That actually helps us when we're looking at this new covenant understanding that all who are part of the new covenant will know the Lord. So ironically, you have these two sons of Levi who are functioning as priests and by their actions were engaging in the very types and shadows that actually pointed to the fulfillment, Christ Jesus and his work. They're involved in teaching the knowledge of the Lord to the people of Israel, and yet we're told they did not know the Lord. Was it because they didn't perform the duties correctly? There was a lot of wonky things happening in, in their exercises that were definitely out of bounds, but that's not really what was driving at the heart of them not knowing the Lord. They were worthless men, and it is actually painting this picture that the law of God was not actually written on their hearts. It functioned in their lives externally, but it had not penetrated their hearts and their minds. They did not know God, and hence they did not experience his mercy and forgiveness. The newness of the new covenant is seen and the extensiveness of the expression of God's grace to all who are participants in it. Why I think this is important is that it actually helps us understand the reality of the new covenant and how different and how better it is than the old. In the old, there were people, really, as we read through Galatians and Romans, there was a, an Israel within Israel. Romans 9 is probably the most helpful where the Apostle Paul is saying, is, is answering this question, well, did God's promises fail? Because as I look around, the people of Israel, the bulk of them have rejected the Messiah. And he's saying, not at all. It's always been the case that there have been those who are part of the old covenant, recognized as the people of God, who actually did not ever know God. Unbelievers. And yet, always, within Israel, there was the true Israel, a remnant, who experienced God writing his, his law on their minds and on their hearts. They, they believed. They lived by faith, believing in the promise to come, which was fulfilled seen clearly in Christ and Christ alone. What I'm trying to emphasize here is in verse 11, in the new covenant, God's saying, this is going to be better. Where once there were people within a people, all in the new covenant will have my law written on their minds and on their hearts. They will have experienced the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit upon them. So all who are my people are my people in the new covenant, by grace, through faith in Christ. Verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I pray that as we have spent time just thinking through the deep waters of the new covenant, your heart has been stirred if you are in Christ. 
the, single, the singular offering of Christ and the acceptance of that offering pictured in his entrance into the holy place and him being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high has made it possible for God to be merciful to the iniquities of those for whom the high priest now intercedes. Because of Christ's work, God now can be merciful towards our iniquities, towards our sins. Remember, God is holy and just. How can God be just and allow sinners to experience communion and fellowship with him for eternity? How can he be both just and the justifier? Only through the work of the Lord Jesus. When you look at Calvary's cross and the empty tomb, you need to understand that there is no other name under heaven that has been given to men upon which you can be saved outside of the work of Christ. There is no experience of a covenant between a holy God and a sinful people. What we deserve outside of the work of Christ is his wrath and his wrath alone. We are condemned. But because of Christ, those who were once condemned can, be, can actually be standing before God justified because of what Christ has accomplished the promise of the forgiveness of our sins is critically important to understanding the new covenant. In the new covenant, God provided the legal basis for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation between God and man. And this forgiveness, our past, our present, and future sins have all been forgiven in Christ Jesus. It is not that at one point he will remember our sins no more, but then we have to fear that another day down the road we will have to stand before him possibly condemned because we continue to struggle with the flesh and fall short of the glory of God. In the new covenant, forever your sins are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Here again, Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because of Christ's righteousness, we who are not righteous, can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and stand before God, cleared of our guilt. Once condemned, now, now found not guilty because of the work of the Son, because of his righteousness that has been imputed to us. And so the scriptures proclaim that the new covenant promise of forgiveness of sins is fully and freely by faith in Jesus. And so the appropriate response to that, to the free promise, is really just an outstretched hand. 
Martin Luther once said this, the gospel giveth freely and requires of us nothing else but to hold out our hands and to take which is offered. Receiving Christ by faith. So where I want to end this morning is by answering this question. Why is God favorable towards sinners? Why is God favorable towards us? This is extremely important for us Christians to wrap our minds around and our hearts around. We are not here this morning because there is anything particularly upright about any of us. It is not because I or you are more righteous than our neighbors who maybe never, never darken the door of a church. It's not because there's something more lovely inside of us. So why am I here? Why are you here? Because the covenant made between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That the covenant that the Father made between the Son is one where he gave a people to the Son and the Son has purchased that people by his blood. And the Spirit seals that people, those whom are his. It is not because of you or because of me. It is because God has made a promise and an oath that we see most clearly in Christ our King. He has entered into covenant, and it, it is all, all of it is a manifestation of his grace. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that those who seek your favor and grace understand that they must seek it in the person and work of Jesus Christ not in any rituals or rites or religion, nor in any kind of sin-stained labor of our hands, thinking that we can somehow achieve right standing before you. But understanding what we read in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Father, we praise you for the new covenant. We praise you that it was given first as a promise. This covenant of grace that was first decreed in eternity past was revealed, secondly, to man after the fall. Third, it was executed and confirmed by Christ in his death and resurrection. And finally, it becomes effective for us, those who have believed upon him, members of the new covenant that are joined together by faith in Christ and Christ alone. We rejoice this morning in the grace that you have lavished upon us. And we pray all of this in his glorious name. Amen. <laughs>